Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. Socialists don't like ordinary people choosing, for they might not choose socialism. We cannot afford to be so politically correct anymore. Conservative One with George Christensen. G'day, I'm George Christensen, host of Conservative One, the podcast defending traditions and freedom. And tonight I'm joined by a parliamentary colleague, the member for Hughes, Craig Kelly. Craig's been on a relentless drive to expose the truth around Australia's temperature records. Uh, it's important because this data is used by the climate activists, the climate alarmists, who want to take away freedoms from other people through uh, trying to paint a very, very bleak picture about Australia's climate change record. I'm joined by Craig Kelly. Thanks, Craig, for joining us. How are you going? Yeah, great to be with you, George. I'm down here in my office uh, down in Sutherland, uh, down in southern Sydney, and it's uh, a little bit chilly down here, about a few degrees colder than uh, up there in the beautiful north of Queensland. Well, that's climate change, mate. Climate change <laughs> at, its, uh, at its best. <laughs> I just it's a bit hotter up here, but, hey, the, the world's not ending up here. Yes, yeah. I just thought once I want, I just like to show you a few little things in my office that might be of interest. First of all, there's oh, my, yes. um, my wonderful statue of Captain Cook. Oh, hello. As, I heard about this. Yeah. As soon as I heard all the lovies were trying to tear our Captain Cook statue down, well, we want to do the exact opposite. So mm -hmm. I went out and I found this statue on the internet. There's a little bloke down at works at a studio down in Marrickville in Sydney. It's actually his own sculpture. And he actually cast this for me specially and made this. So I've got a very proud. Captain Cook bus that sits next to our Australian flag. Wonderful. Wonderful. The other special I've got is, um, remember the other week when they wanted to ban uh, colonial beer? Colonial beer. We've, yes. got to have, we've got to do the exact opposite. We're on the, you know, the good side that believe in freedom of speech and debate. When we see these lovies want to boycott someone, that should be the signal to us to go out there and buy truckloads of the stuff. So <laughs> I went out and bought a carton of uh, good old colonial beer. That's my contribution. I noticed the, they did that in America uh, recently. I think it was Goya Foods. The, the president right. there was, a, yeah, like a, obviously he, he came from Spain, settled in America. I think his father, his grandfather set up this fantastic food business and he sort of said, praise Trump. So all the love, he said, oh, we're going to boycott his food. Well, all the conservatives said, oh, we're going to do the exact opposite. So they went out there and they bought truckloads of the stuff. And you know, it turned out the supermarkets had to ration the supplies. Because they're selling so much of it. <laughs> so with the, literally. Yeah, so that's yeah. the message we've got to get to the love. Is if, you, if you make an attack, if you try and shut down freedom of speech by boycotting companies, it's up to all of us to do the exact opposite. And if you boycott a company, we are going out there to support them and support them in droves. That's, that's the all. message we've got to get through. That shuts them up. And that's one of the protections that we have to freedom of speech. Absolutely, and uh, great to see that Captain Cook statue because it's important we put up our heritage and display our heritage, not tear it down, as uh, exactly. the left would want to do. So well done to you. Uh, I'm loving your office. Um, now, Craig, you have been on the hunt lately. I saw images of you in the <laughs> National Archives uh, yes. pouring through papers. This obviously has to do 
with uh, a long and I've got to say quite meritorious crusade that you've been on to expose the truth around Australia's temperature records. Tell us a little bit about uh, why you've you've dug into that so much and what you have just found. Yes, look, a few things have concerned me over the years with the, uh, the Bureau of Meteorology. Uh, first, there was the uh, deletion or the change of uh, a graph they had up there that showed Australia's very hot days. And it, this was a graph they had on their website, and I'd often refer to it, and I knew exactly where it was, and it showed that 1952 had the most number of very hot days in Australia. And I thought, well, hang on, this shows that we did have a lot of hot days in the past. Anyhow, just after Christmas last year, I went looking for it on their website and it disappeared. It wasn't there. Mm. And I said, I made a bit of an issue about it and it found out the, they'd actually redone the graph, changed all the data, and the old graph had disappeared from the 1952. They found that there weren't that many hot days there and they found new hot days, of course, uh, in this later this century and pushed mm. those up. So really got me concerned that they were sort of altering some of these records. Then, of course, there was also the um, the great heat wave we had at uh, Marble Bar in the 1920s. Uh, the Bureau's ACORN adjustments changed that. And I also remember going back, sitting uh, you know, at a meeting back in Parliament back in 2013. We had the people from the Bureau of Meteorology came in and they explained they'd done what they call these ACORN adjustments, which they actually called the past. And that showed that, uh, you know, the warming was slightly greater than what it was actually measured. And I sort of said to them, look, you know, you've, okay, are you sure these records? And they go, oh, yes, look, we're exactly right. You know, we're hand on heart. We know we're doing the right thing. This is all peer reviewed. And, yes, we've done it. Now, it turns out last year they readjusted the previous adjustments. So they had a second go. It was like something out of the Orwell novel where uh, the past is continually updated to suit the, to suit the needs of the present. So... I thought, look, you can have one go at, at cooling the past. And, okay, it's always areas of grey that's hard to argue who's right and who's wrong. But you've done it once. that's enough. But to go and do it again, to go and remake adjustments to the adjustments that you've already made and to further cool the past, I just thought that was a, that was a bit red hot. But the ones that have annoyed me over the years have been uh, what's Australia's uh, hottest ever days? And when you look through, I know people may know The Trove, which is a collection of our uh, old newspaper articles. It's online. Most yes. wonderful site run by the government. And when you read through the, the history of our country and you show the extreme heat that um, was people were living under in those conditions and, you know, people dropping dead in the streets and reports of 100, 100 uh, dead from, you know, what was heat stroke at, uh, or what we call heat stroke today, you know, and, and people of all ages and and babies dying and um, just terrible, terrible, difficult conditions, which we should really learn about in schools to appreciate how hard and how tough you know, our, our forefathers were and, and the extremes of temperature that they lived through. And uh, like imagine living through you know, those times without uh, air conditioning that we all take for granted today. And that should be top. And when I go and see these records being deleted uh, by the Bureau of Meteorology, I must admit it gets gets a bit under my skin because it's our history, it's our traditions, and it should not only be respected, but it needs to be protected. Mm. So that's what got me up. That's what got me upset. Now, I know you've got a slide that you might be able to put up that yeah, shows right. what the Bureau currently uh, reports as New South Wales' hottest ever days. I don't know if you can... That's it there. New South <laughs> Wales uh, and Australia, Capital Territory. Climatic extremes there for New South Wales. And it shows there... 
Number one, Menindee, uh, Menindee Post Office, 49.7 degrees. So if you look at that, it shows we've never had a day of 50 degrees or over here in New South Wales. Mm. And it's the same in Queensland and in Victoria. So on our southern, our, our eastern states, there's never been a day of 50 degrees, according to the Bureau's documents that you see there, nice glossy brochure that we as taxpayers all pay them for to produce. Mm. It's interesting that that date was back in 1939. Mm. I wonder, even their own records are showing that uh, before climate change became a thing, there were hotter days on record. That's right, yes, yeah. But there's no 50 degree. Now, could you imagine if we get a day of 50 degrees, a really yeah. 50 degrees? It would be the front headline story on the ABC for a week, on all That's their right. news bulletins, on their TV. 50 degrees for the first time ever. This is unprecedented. It must be global warming. You know, well, 50 degrees, oh, my God. How can we ever survive with such temperatures? Well, anyhow, if you go back through the records, Vulcania in 1939 recorded 122 degrees Fahrenheit, which is exactly 50 degrees Celsius. Okay, you want us to bring up the documents? You may have cut some of those some of those documents there, George. I do. Uh, Through the the magic of technology, let me just uh, try and bring that up. (laughs) So these are record. These are actual the records from uh, the forerunner of the bureau, or maybe even the bureau for the town of Vulcania. Yeah, this this now this what you're seeing there. This is one of the records I photographed down at the National Archives, okay? These are the original uh, books where the original te- uh, meteorological observations were taken. It's the official Commonwealth of Australia government uh, record. Uh, it was called the Old Weather Bureau in those uh, those times. And you can see the, you know, they recorded the barometer, the date, the temperatures, the, they read them at three. I mean, so it's quite a detailed record of what they, of what they put up. Now, this, this is for the month of January, 1939. Now, if you scroll there, you can see their temperature at 3 a.m. or after. You can see their 100 and... Okay, in that 3 column. 3 p.m. Yeah, okay, 3 p.m. or after. So you can see there 104.6, just that's the one, 101.6, 107, 106.2, mm. right? 106, 110.2, 113, 113, 113, 117, 118. There's 122. Oh. Now, the red, the red marks next to it, that's actually separately done by an observer. So the practice at the end of each month was that the observer would come in and he would make notes and just correct it was all clear so there was no ambiguities in the record. And you can see there on the other side the 90.2 degrees. That's mm-hmm. also the minimum temperature. So the practice was you circle the minimum temperature and you underline the maximum temperature. So there it is, 122 degrees on that date, which is exactly 50 degrees. Now, there's some old newspaper clippings you might have there amongst them, George, which actually talk about this record as well. Maybe you've got one of those there. Yes, I I certainly do. I'll just uh, bring those up, uh, Craig. Now, the newspaper records, is this a yearbook that you're looking for? Uh, yeah, there's, there's, a couple, there's two. There's a yearbook and there's an old newspaper clipping. Either will do, and we can talk about either of those. Okay, we'll see if we can get the uh, the yearbook um, uh, up here. Uh, now, what did you remember? That's So this was officially recognised at the time. If you go through the old Trove newspapers, there's numerous 
articles that show the 122 degrees. Yeah, here we go. Now, this is the this is from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. They put out a yearbook every year. Now, in the 2002 yearbook, remember, this is not some two-bit organisation. This is, again, the government-run Australian Bureau of Statistics. In their yearbook, they show the extreme maximum temperatures at Wilcannia, 50 degrees. And if you go to what we showed, you showed previously, the bomb, that 50 degrees is missing. Now, we sort of thought this is, you know, th this is the deletion of our history. Why is this? So we went to them. Why have they, they admitted yesterday why they deleted this? And the excuse that they gave is they said, oh, the original record is not digitised. Now, that's people sort of so often afraid to ask, what does not digitised actually mean? What it actually means is they've yet to put it in a computer format. So all the records are there. It's in that original logbook. It's in, it's in the Australian Bureau of Statistics records. It's in all the newspaper articles of the date. There's even a document, a press release from the Bureau of Meteorology in 2013. I don't know if you've got that there as well, where they acknowledge this record. So they can't say, oh, we didn't know about it. That's it. They're underlined in red. Maybe you can blow that up. Yep. We'll see what red we can under, do here. Red underline there. It says, yeah. This is here. Yeah. So, got, so they're talking about Walgett reaching 49.1. This is the highest temperature. You see the date up the top there? A third mm -hmm. of the first right. 2013. Yep. This it. is the highest temperature recorded at any New South Wales station since 1939 when 50.0 degrees was recorded at Wilcannia. That's the Bureau's own press release. Right? Yeah. Hidden away in their hidden away in their archives, they probably forgot to get rid of. But yet if you go to their list of extreme weather today, that's on their website today, which you showed previously, this yes. 50 degrees is actually missing. Now I think that's much. I think that's red hot. That's absolutely yeah. red hot that they were Well, doing. it certainly is red hot. And let's um let's have a look uh at the um, newspaper clipping just to double up on uh I'll double down on what you've said. There yeah. it is. Wave 122. Official record. Right. New records. Uh, new records for heat wave were set yesterday. The highest 122 at Wilcannia, and the official record for New South Wales this summer. There's yeah, something to talk about. An unofficial record also credited Windsor. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, now there were also remember, remember there were also time back in the 30s, people had some uh, separate. Uh, weather stations where they recorded temperatures. Uh, the one at the, the one for the one at Windsor was quite interesting. It was run by a bloke called Tebbit, who was actually on one of the currencies. He was a very famous astronomer who set up a private uh, astronomy place up in Windsor. So, but look, we're not arguing that. We're arguing the official government recorded records, 122. There it is, black and white. And the Bureau said, oh, sorry, we haven't, um, you know, we haven't got round to uh, you know putting in a computer format yet. Therefore, it's, that's the reason why it's not on our, our official page. You know, which sets them up. Which sets up if they get a fifty degree temperature recording, that they can screen that up and hold this as evidence of, of, of global warming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's also interesting, George, in two thousand and seventeen, the bureau uh, set up five new weather stations in the far northwest of New South Wales, and they. Did it with what's called the smallest, what's a smallest size Stevenson screen. So the Stevenson screens are those white louvered boxes. They reduced the size and made it a smaller one, which are known the peer-reviewed science shows they record up to one degree hotter. So the chances of the Bureau 
catching a 50 degree record are increased because of these new weather stations and the change to the smaller Stevenson screen. So they've increased the chances of getting a 50 degree temperature. They've hidden the old 50 degree temperatures from their records. So they set it up for a magnificent headline for the global warming alarmist movement. Now, they've admitted today you know, they're going to put it back in, but this should be done immediately. Like this is, uh, we're the taxpayers, the taxpayers watching this, they pay for the Bureau of Meteorology. They've got on their website at the moment a document that is false, misleading, and that they know is deceptive. They've admitted they know the record of 122 at Vulcania is legitimate. They should take that record down off their website and they should fix it up and put Vulcania in there so we're not likely to, to mislead the you know, Australian public. Yeah. So, I mean, I've these claims, right, you get the lefties that come out and say, oh, well, what are you trying to say here? Are you trying to say that the Bureau is part of a massive conspiracy? It's the old straw oh, man yes. argument, you know, um, don't debate the topic, just to attack you for That's being right. a conspiracy yes. theorist. Uh, but let me ask you the question then, Craig, is that why do you think the Bureau, well, firstly, do you think the Bureau has been deliberately misleading? And if so, why? Look, there's no proof that you have that they're, they're deliberately misleading. But when you look at, when you add all the things up that they've done, uh, whether it's innocently or whether it's deliberately, they've created a lot of propaganda that the global warming alarmist movement use, and they use it to brainwash kids. You've seen, uh, was it Michael Schellingberger the other week, admitting that we've got children being brainwashed by false alarmism and false claims. Now, yeah. if, if Australia's hottest day is 50 degrees in 1939, why is, it, why is that being hidden? Why aren't they publishing it? So to some excuse, oh, the record is not digitised. Just a complete nonsense. Now, if they had an argument that actually made some sense, where well, you could say, okay, look, you know, you guys stuffed up, fair enough. But to argue... We didn't put the record in when we knew about it because it's not digitized. Like, come on, <laughs> that wouldn't pass the, as like old Broadwin Bishop likes to tell us, uh, wouldn't pass the pub test. You're listening to Conservative Wine. Schellenberger is an interesting character. I mean, uh, Schellenberger um, has basically belled the cat on uh, yeah, someone who was deep within the green movement, deep within the sort of <laughs> radical leftist movement. And he's come out and he said, look, it was all wrong. It was all false. Um, and in fact, he's likened the whole thing to a religion. Mm. Uh, and I've got to say, I've heard that on numerous occasions, that same analogy. Um, and <laughs> You could be forgiven for saying it's like a pagan religion. I mean, uh, they used to uh, sacrifice people to the uh, the climate gods, the weather gods. You know, uh, the Aztecs. Uh, well, they used to was it the yeah. they used to pull them down and cut their hearts out and hold it up and uh, pray to the pray to the great weather gods. Yeah. Now, now we do it with industry, and now we do it with jobs, and now we do it with workers, and. Uh, that, um, uh, I mean, I despair at this. I mean, it is a religion. When you look at these people in these outfits like uh, Extinction Rebellion, it's a religion to them. They're on a moral crusade. Um, and uh, look, you know, if they were right, you know, uh, well, all the people that believe in it should be doing what the Extinction Rebellion people are doing, but they're not right. And 
the fact is it has become a religion. Do, do you, you know, I do, do you see I, problem I, there? I see, I see a big problem. I see. I, I always like to debate in facts and evidence and you know detail and things, and that's a lot of that. That's not in this debate. That that's why I went to the um, national archives. I wanted to see what those records actually said for myself. I guess I, I read the newspaper, but I find so many on the green left. It's not about facts. It's not about data. It's about how they feel, and I, you can give them. And what I also found, which is really concerning, there's so many people. Once they get to this brainwash stage, it's as though their brain turns into sort of this green custard and they can't actually, no matter what evidence is put in front of them, they can't actually look at it logically. Mm. And therefore you get a few people like uh, Schellenberger that actually his brain hasn't turned to green custard. He's, he's first of all, he's bought all the green mantra. But he's had enough intuition and, and, and rational thinking to then look at the data and analyze and hang on a minute. What they're telling me is all complete lies and fabrications. And that's yeah. one reason you also find that many of the, from the green left today, they don't want to debate in facts. You say, let's have a debate, let's debate this. No, 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 it's, a, it's this cancel culture. Um, you said something wrong. Um, you're not allowed to be spoken to. Uh, you're, you know, he's, here, you got good old Kevin up on the page. There he's is. a champion. He's a champion. Now, Kevin was one of the world's greatest alarmists. Remember, when we were first elected, Georgia was the greatest moral challenge that's right. climate change and uh, and kevin gave this speech i remember i think it was to the lowy institute about how um was prime minister there were seven hundred thousand properties around australia that were going to be wrecked by rising sea levels and storm surges all associated with climate change right well okay if that's what kevin thought have a look at the place that he just bought <laughs> it, it, oh, no, don't, it, i don't i uh, don't begrudge i don't begrudge him buying a place worth 17 million bucks that's you know I, you know, his wife's been successful. I'm not, I'm not begrudging that at all. What I for think those is, uh, I, for those listening on the podcast, here's domain.com.au. Um, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd and wife Therese Rain buy Pat Rafter's 17, $17 million former beach pad uh, from the man who said that climate change was the great moral uh, challenge of our times and then goes and buys an absolute beachfront property now i'm going to uh bring this <laughs> this up i mean you've got to see it to believe it it just looks that doesn't even look real that picture that i'm looking at here which is the back deck uh or the front deck and the beach is literally like you could probably throw a rock into the water from the balcony uh i mean it, you know kevin rudd has no fear of his $17 million home being subsumed by the waves or the rising sea levels. Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't have spent $17 million on it. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite funny if they, you find uh, the hypocrisy is, is just outstanding. And George just making there's even people that come out and defend Kevin. They go, oh, yes, yes, but look, it's actually high up on a cliff. I said, hang on a minute. Oh. If, you're, if, if you're high on a cliff, the storm surges come up. Sort of undermine the cliff and the house falls into the ocean. That's how it's, it doesn't flood like it's on a lake. That's not the risk of oceanfront properties, you know. Um, you know, to stay, to, to carry on like he has and then to buy an oceanfront and to run around the, the world about everyone else has to make sacrifices apart from good old Kevin, you know, the workers, the workers' champion. So I'm sure many of those uh, Labor members that uh, criticize me, whether they actually get a, 
an invitation whether Kevin has a housewarming party up there that invites all the Labor members of Parliament. I'll be interested to see. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the Otis Group might meet there, eh? Um... <laughs> well, for those who don't know the Otis Group, that's uh, the, the name that um, the Labor Party, uh, so a little sort of like ginger group, have given themselves that understand uh, the importance of coal to our economy. They understand that it brings in $600 billion. And remember, you know, your $600 billion often goes off time. That's $60,000 million every year of export revenue that comes in. I think it's about $10 billion of royalties that pays for, and Queensland's one of the biggest beneficiaries of those, that pays for your hospitals up there and your schools and your roads uh, and your nurses and your teachers, pays all their income. Uh, to close that industry down uh, and the jobs that would be lost and the income that we lost, we would be, sort of go back to be joining some of the third world nations uh, if mm. that happened. And there's a few people inside the Labor Party that understand that. And they understand we can't go and cuddle up to the Greens and want to close down this important industry. They call themselves the Otis Group in Canberra. And, um, yeah, thankfully there's, a, mm. thankfully there's a few of them. But the problem is they're silenced. They're too frightened to speak out. Yeah. Now, the policy in the Labor Party, like, yeah, George, you and I get criticised sometimes for taking a line um, yeah, against our party or arguing against some policy, but that's our party's strength. I remember you, George, you were there when the bank rule, there's calls for bank royal commissions. And the outside of policy, no, we're not having a royal commission, no, no, that's off. And, and you were brave enough to go out and say, no, we need a royal commission. Now, if you were in the Labor Party and you were saying something against their policy, you would have been lined up against the wall and executed at dawn. Mm -hmm. But the fact was, you were right. And eventually, because you spoke out, the debate happened amongst our party, more people spoke out about it, and the position was changed. This is why you always get a better Liberal government than you will a Labor government, because we on the backbench on our side of politics are given the freedom, are given the freedom of speech and the opportunity to, to talk about policies that we disagree with something, we're allowed to do so without the punishment. The Labor Party said, if you were in the Labor Party, George, and you spoke out against the policy, you would have been shot and gone a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And yet the result that we got because of you speaking out was best for our country and best for our nation. So I'm gathering you think that even though there's a ginger group within the ALP, that uh, there'll likely be no change to Labor's um, holus bolus uh, <laughs> just capture uh, towards climate alarmism. I mean, this week we actually had Anthony Albanese instructing his uh, members to shut up about the coal mine in Queensland. And I thought, holy moly, we're back to Bill Shorten again. Um, So you think that they're captured, there's no redemption, or what do you think? the, 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 The reality of political life in Australia is Labor cannot govern without the Green support. Simple as that. They are in a coalition, an unofficial coalition, as much as the Liberal and National Party are. You can remember uh, they don't show it in opposition, but remember Julia Gillard and Bob Brown, they had the wedding Oh, I remember. (laughs) They all went there and they signed the peace. It looked like that's how you get married, right? Now, they do it officially when they're in government. Uh, They do it unofficially when they're in opposition. But the thing is, you've got a a green tail or a green-red tail uh, wagging the Labor dog because they know Without those green preferences in the inner cities, they can't win office. They can't come to government. So if there's any, whenever the pressure comes on, they'll always defer to the green policy. 
Now, uh, let's turn to our side because we're in power at the moment. Um, and uh, uh, I'm probably going to get us both in trouble for this. The Paris Agreement. Wouldn't be the, wouldn't be the first time, George. Wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> well, the, the Paris Agreement, mate. Uh, what's your view on the Paris Agreement? I'll, I'll tell you mine, but I want to hear your view. Okay, okay. Well, firstly, I was very concerned when we first um, uh, agreed to it. And I remember in the party room at the time, when I should talk about what's in the party room, but I remember um, saying, well, how much is this thing going to cost us, right? And what's the thing? And anyhow, one of the um, the preconditions or the conditions precedent of the Paris Agreement that Tony Abbott agreed to was that it would be all nations contributing. That was the idea, right? Okay, well, if everyone's in, fair enough, right? But but when you look at the details of it, it's like China's in, but China's in and does nothing. Yeah. So China can increase their... So what China has signed up to are some to nonsense emissions. about emissions. Yeah, they can increase their emissions to the year 2030. And when they get to 2030, they don't have to reduce them. They just keep them on that platter. Now, the yeah. way... The way China is developing and industrializing, China was saying our emissions are going to go like that now. Instead of going like that, we'll make them go like that. No, no. Well, that's 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 not even we'll correct. No, they said they said our emissions are going like this, and they'll continue to go like this until we get to twenty thirty, and then they'll go then they'll go like this. So they'll trust us as well. Yeah, so trust us, trust us up until twenty thirty. Right. Yeah. This is what the China's the actual deal was that was signed up to us. Trust us until twenty thirty. You close down all your industry, right? Put all these carbon taxes on yourself and reduce all your CO2 emissions and stop building coal-fired power stations and you know, wind back on your production of aluminium. And uh, you know, and we'll transfer all that uh, manufacturing to China. So right? Here's where the rubber hits the road. Is China using the West's capitulation to green politics to get strategic advantage? I think absolutely. I think the Chinese... Con in the Communist Party, they must sit around the table and look at the policies and the, the deals they've been able to get out of the West in things like Paris, and they must be laughing their heads off, absolutely laughing at us. Remember, we spent, I think, last year something like $1.7 billion of money we sent to China to buy their solar panels. So it's $1.7 billion. Goes out of our country. It's all subsidies. Now, where that $1.7, where the subsidies come from, where where the money comes from to pay for those solar panels is through the rebates that they get, the subsidies, and those subsidies are paid for by Australian pensioners and working families in higher electricity bills. So there's hidden green taxes in everyone's electricity bills that actually subsidises the importation of billions of dollars each year of solar panels from China. So you've got this huge wealth transfer to China under that policy, and then those solar panels wreck our grid push all this uh, intermittent electricity generation uh, into it at much higher cost. We look at the numbers. It's much higher cost than the coal-fired power station that's being produced. And that pushes up the price of electricity, which then causes our businesses in Australia to close down and the manufacturing to move to China. Mm. But they're, they're just laughing at us. They're laughing at us. How we go. And yet we're locked in because we've got this green ideology. We've got a Senate that we uh, in government don't control. We've got so many people go, oh, look at the pretty solar panels, all the pretty wind turbines, and without any idea of the economics behind them, especially without any idea that how the engineering actually works. Like we had, for example, Danny the other week, Clover Moore, she's the Lord Mayor of Sydney, 
and she's put out on a, a, a tweet. Sydney, Sydney's now 100% renewable energy. Nonsense. You know, minute. Yeah, yes, yeah, 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 You worked out. She's not talking about Sydney. She's talking about the Sydney city of council area. And then, no, she's not actually talking about all of the Sydney area. She's only talking about the buildings that the council actually run. <laughs> with, right? So it's only, right? And then, she, and then how is it 100% renewable energy? Where does the electricity come from at night to run the to run the streetlights. This is the nonsense that they go on. And this is why you get so many uh, brainwashed people, like, you know, gullible and naive children that listen to this nonsense and they say, oh, Sydney's 100% renewable. We don't need any more coal fire power stations. We can close them all down and we should be building more wind and solar because we can all go 100% renewable. Well, it's just, you know, what do people think that the, the electrons that uh, circulate around in the, in the grid you can pick. You can pick and choose which ones you want. It's just just complete and utter, yeah. utter rubbish. Madness. Where's it all going to lead to, Craig? What do you, where do you think that we're well, going? Well, uh... look, I, I you know I've firstly thank goodness that we're we're in government. The the coalition in government during this period of um, you know the, the, what they call the coronavirus, novel coronavirus, COVID nineteen, Wuhan flu, you know whatever it's the latest oh. name. Whatever latest name that it is, um, yeah. Thank goodness that that we're in government uh, during this period. The reality of it is that uh, when we get through this, we're going to be probably a trillion dollars in debt, yeah, or more. When you add up all the debt of the federal and state governments, and the only way we're going to get out of it is to produce and start making stuff, and we're not going to do that by buying, you know subsidizing solar panels and buying solar panels from china we've got to get back to using what is our nation's competitive advantage and that's the one of the biggest competitive advantages that we have in this nation is that beautiful black coal seam that runs down our eastern seaboard that belongs to every single australian you know yes the mining companies have the, the license and the rights to dig it up but when they do they pay a royalty that goes to a state government and so it belongs to every single Australian. That's the royalty they pay to access it, and that gives us a competitive advantage. Now, if we're not gonna, if we're not gonna use that, if we're gonna sort of come up with this idea of uh, continually to, you know, sort of pay homage to this green ideology and groupthink, that you can sort of somehow run you know, a competitive economy, uh, you know, on solar panels and wind turbines, we're gonna leave uh, future generations of Australia much, much, much poorer. Uh, and we're going to be beholden uh, to the communist that run the Communist Party of Chinese for decades to come. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's scary because um, I, I you know there are people on our side of the equation who um, probably have the belief and drive to change direction. It's whether or not we'll be able to push through it um, with. Uh, uh, you know, all the sacred cows that are out there, um, the media, uh, all the uh, all the elitist lovies that um, will pile on, shall we change direction? And um, obviously, as you've mentioned before, a Senate that will work for us. Mm. Um, I long for the day that uh, we stop sacrificing workers and industries on the altar of Paris, uh, that we ensure that we can actually revive manufacturing in this country because it is the only way 
that we are going to be able to defend ourselves in this brave new world where uh, China has certainly proven to us already that it is no friend of Australia and no friend of the West. We are going to have to do things ourselves in order to survive in this new world. And uh, we won't be doing that while shackled to the Paris Agreement and uh, and all that means for industry and all that means for jobs and workers. There's mm -hmm. one thing that often people say, oh, we can be a renewable superpower. Right? So we're going to be what? We're going to import solar panels from China to make us a superpower. Mm. But oh, yes, but we have all this sunshine. There's an interesting website. It's called the uh, World Global Solar Atlas. Mm -hmm. And yes, in the middle of the Australian desert, there, yes, there's a lot of sunlight, and that's a good spot to put solar. But the problem is it's thousands of kilometres away from where our power grids are. So the cost of running the... Uh, extent the uh, transmission lines to get that power into the grid kills anything there is of it. Now, there's talk about in New South Wales these new uh, renewable energy zones about how wonderful they are. Beijing actually has better access to solar power than Sydney does. This is people might not you've got it here, you've got, you got it here. I don't know whether you can scroll across to China there. You can see the darker, the darker the red. Yeah, keep going. Up on the, the screen. Global Solar Atlas. Yeah, that's the one. Go, go down a bit, okay? The darker the red, right, the stronger the solar power. So scroll scroll, scroll, scroll up, George. You can see Australia. Now, that looks pretty good. But see in China, if you look up where Beijing is, I don't know if you could sort of zoom in on Beijing. No, I'm not sure I can do that. Mm. You, can, you might have to use – there you go. Now, see there – See okay, see, that's Beijing about where your thing is. Can you zoom – click in one more? Okay, you've gone in a – Go get maybe go out one or down or, or scroll down a bit. Beijing's just there to the uh, Beijing's just there to the you're down a bit far you're down you're down in southern China. The north okay. part of China where Beijing is, to scroll down a bit more maybe. But that's that's about where Beijing go, go down down down. So so I mean actually go up so you're closer okay. to Mongolia. Right now see yeah. all that red there, right? That hard red. That's all just a couple of hundred kilometers north and northwest of Beijing. Now those areas have better solar, uh, when you look at what the solar power that comes in, the solar radiance that comes in, those areas have equal or better areas than what we do here in New South Wales. And that's only a couple of hundred k's from Beijing. So the idea that we can somehow have some great advantage of importing solar panels from China to give us some competitive advantage over China when they've got that much capacity for solar is just a dangerous, dangerous foolhardiness and yet i hear this repeated so often oh you know australia become a global superpower it is just such dangerous rubbish it, it, it's quite scary mm -hmm. well uh craig there's a challenge ahead of us all and that is um to uh try and demolish some of these uh green sacred cows and one of those is what you've been working on and more power to you in exposing the reality of Australia's temperature history. So uh, keep it up. We hope Thanks, to see George. a lot more in the future. Thank you very much for uh, joining us for this episode of Conservative One, the podcast defending tradition and freedom. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, George. See you back in Canberra soon. We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth.
or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. You've been listening to the Conservative One Podcast with George Christensen.